welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about humans, science, technology, and the way human behavior uh, interacts with science and technology. With me, as always, is Dr. Susan Weinshank. Hello. Hello. And today, we actually have a very special guest with us. Uh, our first guest, our inaugural guest, as it were, is Paul Zak, president of Zest X Labs. Uh, hello, Paul. Hi, Guthrie. So, um, just so the uh, the audience knows a, a little bit, why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to? Oh, mostly no good. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm a professor also at Claremont Graduate University, and uh, this last year we spun out a company called ZestX Labs to help um, optimize consumer experiences from, from marketing to um, user experiences online to uh, in-store shopping experiences. And that's been a, a labor of love and, and a labor. <laughs> Great. Yeah, so um, for those who, who don't know, Paul has done some really, really amazing research. And uh, we've actually talked um, a bit uh, on this podcast about some of the research he's done. Um, oh, that's right. We, we talked about it because um, we did the, uh, the story podcast, didn't we? Yes, yes. And so then I always talk about about Paul's book, The Moral Molecule, when, when I'm talking about stories. So, um, yeah, Paul, we've already talked about you. <laughs> and then <laughs> you we decided. On. Yeah, well, no, we decided have... we better have you on so you could, you know, you could clear up your name and reputation. After the, <laughs> That's you know, right. I, I, I knew it. <laughs> no, just kidding. So I'm really excited. Um, yeah, this is our first guest. So I'm really excited to have. Paul on uh, I've been a fan and following following his work um, and this is the first time I'm really gonna get to talk in in depth about the the work he's done he Paul you and I've had a phone conversation um, that was I don't know fairly in depth but that was more getting to know each other rather than necessarily talking about the work so um, we were talking before we started the podcast about maybe starting with uh, talking about the science of creativity, which is like one of my favorite topics. So I would love to hear about what you've been finding out about, you know, quantifying creativity. Which sounds almost like an oxymoron to a lot of people. So I, uh, I know you have this experience and I do when you work with, with creatives who are making this content. Um, you know, there's something kind of magical happens, uh, and, and you've had it, and I've had it too. You know, where you're writing or you're creating something, and all of a sudden the the muse speaks to you, or you get an inspiration, or you have an epiphany, and something kind of beautiful happens. Um, the the problem is that it's very difficult to recreate those factors, but also to separate yourself from that process. Um, so uh, we've done a lot of work on uh, on advertising, in which when you look at the commercial, you go, say a TV commercial, you think, man, this, the creatives were just, they had the right idea and this did not work. And the problem <laughs> is, you know, when does it not work? And I can give you some examples of that and also stuff that works. It's very difficult to know because, again, when you're creating this yourself, you're so enthusiastic about it. It's like your own writing or your own research. You know, you, I always say if you spend two weeks working on anything by yourself, everything looks brilliant because after two weeks, you've convinced yourself it's the most interesting thing in the world. Um, so, how do we actually get into understand what it is about a creative endeavor that makes it valuable? And and for people who have to pay the bills, you know, eventually we need a client to pay for this, or we need, uh, you know, someone to to purchase our time. Um, so, uh, as you know, we we've done a lot of work uh, on persuasion for the U.S. Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and we've used all this knowledge to create. Uh, a set of platforms and algorithms in which we can quantify the impact in terms of persuasion that is uh, motivating people to take an action of a of a creative uh, a creation. Uh, wow, that's a good, that's a wrong word of a of a creative endeavor of a of an advertising uh, a commercial uh, an experience um, a location a physical space, and I think that's useful. So it's it doesn't completely quantify creativity, but it quantifies. To the extent that the humans are really immersed in this experience, and when they're immersed in it, then you're likely to be able to influence them to take some action. So that's how you're. So when you talk about quantifying creativity, you're talking about can we measure 
the amount of engagement um, let's use that word for a second and then of course we have to you know you have to tell us how you quantify that but can we measure the amount of engagement of the of the person who's um, interacting with this thing we created whether it be a TV commercial or a movie or whatever is that what is that what you mean correct so again we want to take the kind of self-report out of this and just uh, query the brain to see from a neurologic perspective the degree of engagement which we yeah we can define and and part of that is that engagement is very difficult to articulate so the simple yeah. example I think I give you when we talked on the phone was if I ask you or Guthrie you know why do you like chocolate ice cream more than vanilla <laughs> That why question is really complicated, right? It's 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 a very you can tell me you like chocolate more than vanilla. So the why I don't know. Uh, it's a I don't feeling. Know. Your your dad bought it. Yeah, it's a feeling. It seems right. And once in a while you buy vanilla, right? Which is even more complicated. So, <laughs> um, so the question is why? And I think you know as opposed to relying on people's um, very flawed ability to report their inner feeling states, we can actually measure that neurologically and then just take that you know, that reporter out of the brain. And it also gets away from things like uh, you know, what psychologists call, you know, so socially acceptable uh, answers, right? So we do a lot of work uh, to test our algorithms against um, ads that have been rated by lots of people, like Super Bowl ads, which gets a lot of ratings. And, you know, if you put a, a gratuitous puppy in a commercial, everyone says they love it. But if, if it doesn't have an effective storyline, if, if the story's not connected to the product, um, it turns out that the brain is not very convinced by that. So, you know, uh, what people say they like and what really is immersive and engaging for them often are different things. So, Paul, I have a question for you. How are you measuring this then? Right. So uh, there's the long answer and the short answer. So I'll do the midpoint. Um, so okay. we spent about about ten years um, running a series of experiments where we measured uh, neurochemical changes. We uh, infused uh, 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 drugs into people to t turn on and off parts of the brain. That's awesome. To, to really map out how this story immersion system works, and it's based on work we we have done that uh, was reported in the Moral Molecule on human connection. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, asking. Uh, prior to this work, you know, why humans are ever nice to each other when they're strangers and identifying the neurologic signals that tell us that someone else is safe or interesting or someone we want, want to interact with. Mm. And then we applied that to, to storytelling, communications, and immersive experiences that involve other people like shopping at a store. Anyway, so it took a long time and now we actually use wireless sensors uh, on the torso and fingers and head in which we collect data a thousand times a second. We get gigabytes of data out of people's brains and we've refined over a period of time um, a set of measures and algorithms that identify the degree of story immersion. So uh, mm -hmm. the, the company's called Zestex Labs because we derive this algorithm we call Zest that tells you how much zest this ad has. And so it's, it's a linear measure. So this commercial has a zest of three and another one has a zest of six. The commercial with six is twice as immersive and therefore much more likely to motivate a consumer to take an action. So you spent all this time figuring out kind of what the landmarks and signals are for these particular measures of engagement in the brain and then you can measure that while they're watching something and if the two line up you know that's what's going on yeah and we always focus on actions so okay you know what I, what we don't want to do is just say hey do you like this commercial do you think it's persuasive <laughs> again i don't neurologically i don't know what liking really means it's just it's poorly defined so we want to talk about these immersion measures. So let me tell you what they are, uh, and I'm happy to share them because the, you know anyone who's listening can also measure these, but to actually get them to work together is, is complicated. So um, because we are doing this work, particularly for the Department of Defense, in which they wanted to have very robust measures that could work not just in a nice, quiet laboratory, but you know, in, particularly in, in you know out in the field and potentially mm -hmm. nasty areas. Uh, so we use multiple measures of attention to uh, communication, and, and attention is the first thing you have to get. So uh, the brain uh, doles out resources very efficiently, and if something's not interesting, you just don't pay attention to it, because attention costs calories to run, and your brain wants to save calories. So the first thing is to, to measure attention multiple ways, but the second, and, and the really the key part for motivating action, is emotional resonance uh, 
with the story or the experience. So an example of this is, is when you're watching the opening of a James Bond movie and uh, you know James Bond is dodging bullets as he's running across, across a roof to save the girl and your palms begin to sweat. Well, you're, you're reflecting the emotions of the character in that, in that movie. And if it's an, a really good movie or communication or commercial, uh, you'll continue to have this kind of emotional resonance with the characters. And then essentially, as social creatures, our brains have this sort of monkey see, monkey do effect, which is to say, well, apparently the humans are now dodging bullets. Uh, <laughs> I'm a human. I should also consider dodging bullets. <laughs> in case you didn't know, that was a thing to do when people are shooting at you. Uh, so, you know, stories teach us things, and, and the reason we become immersed in, in novels and movies and TV shows is because it tells us something about the human condition, in the best case. And even a 30-second even a commercial can tell us something about the human condition, which is valuable. And I could give you a couple of examples of that, but when you see a really well-crafted story, people have these physiologic responses, and as humans we say, oh, apparently this is such a compelling story that this is what the humans are doing, I should sort of follow that as well. Again, not, it's not a one-to-one, -one, but the more you see that, the more you make the case that this is important. Like a great documentary you may have seen, or even a great movie, right? We've seen this, this, this uh, movie, and you're really committed now to, I don't know, uh, caring about um, uh, killer whales or um, you know, worrying about where your sushi comes from. So you know, movies really can change our attitudes, opinions, behaviors, and the question is, were the signals that do that, and that's what we spent ten years and about three million dollars. Uh, a lot of that, your tax money, figuring out. <laughs> All right, wait a minute. So, 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 what are the signals? Because you said you have these, you're, you've got people, you know, strapped up. You're doing these measurements outside. So, what, what does it look like physiologically when someone is is paying attention and has that resonance? Right. It's a great question, and and you know, we think of in the brain as. Uh, um, kind of having a, a gas pedal and a brake pedal. And the gas pedal we call sympathetic arousal. This is higher heart rate, um, uh, sweating, uh, uh, increased activity in, in, in things like uh, prefrontal cortex. Uh, at the same time, there's the, the brake pedal, which is called parasympathetic activity, reduces that tension and allows us to be more restful, more calm. And uh, what we find in these highly immersive situations is that the gas and the brake are simultaneously on. This is a really unusual situation. It's a, it's a kind of focused relaxation. So you're, you're paying attention to the stimulus, but you're also really open to the responses that your body's having. You're not suppressing that. You're not emotionally regulating. You're feeling what you think those characters are feeling. Um, so uh, again, we're getting six different measures of this to make sure that we're really capturing, uh, you know, what what is really going on in your brain. And often we'll supplement that with with, with other measures like uh, eye tracking for visual attention. Uh, but this overall zest measure, uh, according to the DoD, uh, Department of Defense, has been shown to be, you know, more than eighty percent accurate at predicting what people will do after they uh, watch or view a communication. Uh, so that's pretty darn good. Boy, that's pretty strange. That's really strange that the the gas and the breaker is on at the same time. So I, I should say that. So uh, Susan's a scientist. She she knows this work. But but for the non-scientists listening, or for the scientists listening, uh, they're not actually simultaneously on. They uh, they're kind of going they, back and forth. They go back and forth. So you actually maintain this balance where it's on off on off on off, which is a really interesting situation. Um, so you can think of this as um, like this work that Richie Davison has done at Wisconsin, uh, one of your neighbors. Uh, I know, and I, I don't yeah. know him uh, personally, but I definitely know of his work. Yeah, so he studied uh, uh, long-term uh, uh, Buddhist monks, uh, long-term meditators yes. or Buddhist monks, and you see this sort of focused attention where you see a reduction in things like prefrontal activity where the brain is kind of relaxed. On the other hand, you're, you're really present. You're really uh, focused on the here and now. And so it's for storytelling, we, uh, this has been called narrative transportation. So you know, the narrative is so compelling that you are transported into that world. And it's super weird that humans can do this. And we're probably the only animals that do it, in which you give me enough stimulation, and all of a sudden, my brain 
projects me into a world in which I don't live. And that is really interesting. Well, this is especially interesting um, because we've been doing a lot of this podcast, especially um, we basically start it like the week we start it. All these things are just kind of coming into place. For example, um, all these virtual reality headsets are coming out of dev and are now completely available. Um, we have all this like deep learning uh, stuff that's going on that a lot that's going to allow you know humans to kind of interact with virtual worlds in a way that they were not able to before. Um, so I I'm very curious. Uh, I mean I don't want to get too far off topic, but just as an interesting side point, um, especially with virtual reality, uh, if you, you watch the the videos, right? They strap on the headset, um, and there's one. Uh, where they're using there, there's a new p- potential like therapeutic version. So people who are scared of heights, they there's a in, they have a big room and they have a like a wooden board, and on the virtual reality headset there's a board that's going out of a skyscraper, and they have you know they have like fans blowing so you can feel the wind, and at the end of the board in virtual reality is a small kitten, and you have to get to the end of the board to save the kitten. And, and, you know, you watch the video and these people are just, they're, they're, they're absolutely terrified. They're completely in that place. Um, but of course, you know, if they fall, right, if they just fall on soft padding. Um, but they are, they're completely there. But then, and then when they, when they do save the kitten, it's, everyone's very happy. Yeah. So, so Paul, what do you think about, I mean, I don't know if you've been doing any measurements yet with, with people who are immersed in virtual, in, in virtual reality rather than. Than you know, watching, for instance, a commercial or a video. But but, um, what do you? Th- if you haven't done that work at, up to this point, what do you think would be, you know, is the reaction physiologically similar? Do you think, or or will we find something totally different when we do those measurements? So the question is so appropriate. We actually just finished a pilot. Uh, of people in a virtual virtual reality world, and you know we found very similar reactions. Well, what we were looking at primarily is whether people became acclimated to that world. So when you first, uh, if you guys have tried this, when you first put on these goggles, particularly when you have a rich uh, uh, you know world to explore, uh, you know you're you're looking at the ceiling, you're looking at the sky. It's you know you're you're kind of distracted because it is very immersive. Um, I should say for listeners who haven't tried it. You know that the technology is just a little behind the computing power, where it still feels like you're watching, uh, you know, a, a, a very kind of in the round movie. Uh, you know, you know it's a movie, but it becomes immersive. So we, we, the first test we wanted to do is just: do people relax and stop looking around? Do they do they physiologically feel like they're just in this space? And the answer, the first answer to that is yes. So that's kind of good news for the virtual reality makers, um, but. I think to Guthrie's point, you know, there's a, you know, as this technology gets better and it's becoming, it, it becomes more difficult to differentiate between the actual world and a virtual world. Um, you know, I think as, as Guthrie suggested, the brain doesn't really care which world is in. I mean, this is like why we cry at movies. I mean, you're in a movie theater, you're a, you know where you are, you're cognitively intact, and yet when the boy gets the world girl at the end, you're crying. That's actually again really unusual from from a brain perspective. Um, so I think the virtual worlds have the opportunity to really ramp up that immersion in the story. Um, so maybe there are people who become addicted to that. Their their virtual world is so engaging, they don't want to come out of the virtual world and go back into the real world where things are messier. And um, and for our listeners, this is not some crazy out in the future thing. Right now, you do virtual reality at about 1080p. Probably four or five years, you'll be able to be in virtual reality at 4K resolutions with you know 120 hertz refresh rate. Um, that will be essentially you will not be able to distinguish as long as you have high enough um, you know content resolutions of your of the of the you know surroundings that you're in. Um, or even if you can film a space, uh, for example, um, with 3D movies, uh, you'll be able to like film like a forest, and you'll be able to l- walk around the forest and basically look at everything at full resolution. Um, so maybe five years, seven years, ten years, um, it, it, 
it may be really, really hard to differentiate uh, when you put on virtual reality what you're looking at um, it compared to when you take the, the headset off. Uh, whereas now, again, I, I've, I've tried it, um, and it, it is quite the experience, uh, probably very similar to the first time people, you know, when, when, a, when a moving picture first came out, and it was just like nothing your, you know, your brain had knew, knew, even knew what to do with. Um, but you can, yeah, you can, uh, you know, you can see the pixels, you can see the, the textures. Uh, but in a couple of years, not so much. It'll be great. And I think once we add in the haptics, which are getting much, much better now, where you can feel things, you're getting this somatic feedback, I think it's going to be even more immersive. Mm -hmm. um, I think for the creatives listening out there and people creating content, um, you know, one of the most interesting things is how storytelling is changing in, in that virtual world. So once, you know, the, the viewer uh, can create his or her own story, then I think the richness of storytelling um, increases, but also the opportunity to get lost in the wrong way in a story changes. So I think one of the models will be in the video game industry where you can choose your own route through this, say, uh, you know, you know, uh, massively online game. But uh, at the same point, you have guide posts, you have individuals, you have avatars that are kind of guiding you on what the right path is. So I think it opens up a whole new realm of, of immersion for consumers, uh, for advertisers, and for content creators. So the, the other uh, thing, especially when, it, when you talk about advertisers, um, that I don't know how people are going to get around. So right now, um, you know, you're watching TV and an ad comes on, right? And it's, you know, there's a box on your TV and the ad comes on. And unless you really take an effort to, you know, if you have TiVo, that's why people love it. So they can pause and then fast forward through the commercials. Um, it, you basically have to watch that content because your TV is in front of you. So the real problem is you're watching a 3D movie uh, or you're watching an advertisement in a 3D space, uh, but particularly a movie, right? So it's like you're there, right? And the characters are doing their dialogue. Um, and like kind of in front of you and you can walk around them. Well, what happens when the, when the person watching gets bored and decides to just wander off, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or the advertisers <laughs> are trying to show like a, like a scene, right? And you're like in the scene, you can see the pets doing the thing. And you're like, this is boring. And you just, you walk out the door, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure how you can, you know, with a TV, it's easy to keep the user's focus in one spot because you're controlling the pipe mm -hmm. and the motion and what's going on, uh, but in virtual reality, I, I'm not sure how you how you fix that. But then there's the, the richness of storytelling. I think movie makers, by the way, all the major movie studios uh, now have VR divisions, hmm. and um, you know it'll be very soon in which all the movies will be released in VR as well. So um, you know that's that's going there. But it really requires just kind of rich storytelling where you want to find out what happens to the protagonist. You want to find out if the bad guy gets his comeuppance at the end. And so you've got to really build this kind of rich story structure. Um, but you're right, Guthrie, it's, it's, there's going to be uh, kind of waypoints in which you can change your story. So it could be that now I get to watch uh, whatever the biggest movie now is, Superman versus uh, Batman, Batman yeah. and I can watch it 20 times because there's 20 different versions of that movie because I get to choose the route through the movie. I get to choose you know, which route they go. So from an advertiser or from a content creator perspective, um, once we figure out how to nail this so that you have routes and they branch off and they don't branch in an infinite number of ways because that's just unwieldy, um, then you, know, you really have a, a, a very compelling experience. And for some reason, I, I never used to watch when I was younger. I never used to watch movies uh, a second or third time. But now I have movies because uh, apparently I'm old, as my kids say. Uh, <laughs> I have movies that I've seen five, six, seven, eight times, and I really enjoy them. If they're great movies, you know, you see so many layers that once you understand the story, you really appreciate how richly these were designed. So I can imagine in the VR movie world or advertising world uh, where there are just layers and layers, and you may want to watch that ad for, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Dove Soap, because every time you watch it, it actually changes. It's evolving. And maybe from a neuroscience perspective, it's evolving as you watch it. So I know more about you. I'm picking up your physiologic signals through the headset you're wearing, which is definitely in the future. And so now <laughs> I get to actually create a better story for you. 
and you dig it more. And again, whether you do or do not buy Dove soap depends on do you like Dove soap? Do you buy it? Does it give you a, a rash? I mean, all kinds of things. But at least from a commercial perspective, I think we can really do a lot more targeting where we're not getting crap commercials that I don't care about that have nothing to do with me. Um, you know, the the base level of that's like Hulu or other places that give you this kind of, you know, do you, is this commercial relevant to you? Right. But I think once we're in the VR world and I'm already touching your head, I can get brain activity. So, you know, we're we're definitely thinking about that. I think we're not there yet, but eventually it'll be, you know, you have a glove on, you have a, um, you know, VR goggles on, and I just optimize the story for you between what you're interested in and how your brain's responding to it. So, I mean, because it takes a lot, it takes a lot more effort to make that extra content. Um, but, you know, video games have been doing this for years. You know, the, a normal video game, it, it's about 60 hours just for the, just to go walk through it once. And there's all these different things you can do and side quests and, uh, you know, kind of go on and on. And the, the thing about kind of engagement, I remember when the Xbox Connect, the second one, came out. They're like, this is so, uh, ad, you know, it's so sensitive. You know, we'll be, we'll be able to tell if, if the person is actually engaged in the game. And so if the person gets bored, right, then the bosses start getting harder to, to, to bring them back in. Um, uh, but of course, that's probably nothing compared to having something strapped on your head that can get live brain activity feedback. Right. <laughs> okay, if you could see me on video, I'm like, my eyes are getting bigger. <laughs> And I'm, my head is starting to shake. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, it's a, this is a, I mean, it's a little, it's a little overwhelming. All right. I have some questions for you. So, you know, when, when, um, if we just talk about, uh, commercials or movies or video or even just audio pre virtual reality, right. Then we can talk about, for instance, you know, the, the how how having a well constructed story and having well defined characters um i i'm assuming uh and paul you can tell us whether that you know increases engagement um so you know there's this idea of you can uh you know tell a story well and you can have good characters and you can do certain things to make the story more engaging when we talk about now taking, you know, going into the, the VR space with all of this, um, I'm kind of imagining that there's going to be this, and maybe I'm wrong, this initial point where the developers and designers can get so caught up in just, you know, the technology and the environment and the pixels and the, um, that, that level of experience that uh, there might be this initial time when they forget that, you know, the storyline, the characters, you know, that that's really important. And so I, I, here's, my, here's my analogy. When um, this is, I mean, this analogy may not make sense to people who are too young, but I'm going to use it anyway. When, when, compu when with computers, we went from, uh, you know, character-based systems where all you could have was, you know, uh, pixels on the screen and letters on the screen, and you made a box by putting a bunch of asterisks, you, you know? You, you reach a fork in the road. Do you turn yes. left or right? <laughs> so, you know, and then we went to to graphical user interfaces where now you had colors and you could you had more pixels and you could have shapes. And initially, the stuff that came out it was like we forgot everything we knew about how to design something well because we were just, everyone was so excited about having colors and shapes on the screen. <laughs> and there was like a couple of years where, you know, it's like, okay, we've it seems like we've almost gone backwards in terms of how useful or usable anything is. And then we finally, it's like, oh, wait a minute, all those things we used to know back when we didn't have all this stuff, that all applies, you know, having things where people need them or want them, only having, you know, the choices they want. And so eventually we, we adjusted. And I'm wondering if, you know, initially in this, in this VR space, we'll kind of forget um, some of the things we know about what's persuasive and engaging 
and we'll, you know, and we'll just be into, uh, you know, the the leaves on the trees and the thunderbolts and the tornado and the, you know, all, all the uh, action things happening, and forget that. Wait a minute, you need a good story. It, do you think that that's going to happen, or do you think that the people who are um, designing and developing the uh, the this new VR stuff, you know, they're coming from the previous world uh, and, of games and and ads, and they know to continue using that. It's a great question. I'm I'm not sure I know the answer, but having been now uh, in the last year at a number of these conferences, uh, as Guthrie suggested, I think they're taking cues from the video game world, yeah. in which you're creating immersive 2D environments and putting those into the 3D. So I don't think we're going to go back to uh, yeah, asterisks on the screen. <laughs> um, I, but have, oh, but what ahead. we found in, in studying, uh, you know, at this point, hundreds and hundreds of short-form stories, uh, you know, advertising, uh, print layouts, is that the brain loves a good story. Story is, you know, this is like, you know, from Aristotle 2,300 years ago, but, you know, a well-crafted story, your brain just loves it. It's almost optimized to engage the human brain and a poorly crafted story, whether it's in VR, whether it's on a movie, uh, it doesn't really matter the medium. Uh, the, uh, you know, w with all due respect to Marshall McLuhan, um, you know, the, the <laughs> medium, yeah, the message is the medium. I guess that is Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, the medium is the message. No, it's the message that actually trumps the medium. So, um, well, yeah, I think a good story is a good story is a good story. So I have an answer for you, Susan. You do? Yes, I do. And it's, okay, what? And it's that... Um, so back back in the in the in your example that you gave, right? There was a couple years where people were just having fun and making things look pretty. Um, but they they didn't know that's not going to happen this time. So right now, uh, especially with with DirectX 12 and the Vulkan uh, AP, uh, APIs that, that are coming out, which are it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is is that currently the way video games work is that the the video game models um, actually render everything in three dimensions already. So it renders it in three dimensions. Um, that's how you get the, the shadows and the shading and, and the, the particle effects. It's all rendered basically in three dimensions. And then it takes that three-dimensional rendering and figures out what the user's camera angle is and then displays that in two dimensions. But at its core, at its base, um, video games are already designed to work in three dimensions. So in theory, the jump from taking a normal video game and then just having it also work in VR is probably a lot smaller leap than going from a text-based game to a game with graphics. So what you'll probably end up seeing is, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, I don't know enough about the exact way that how you have, how you have to port games, but you'll probably start seeing video games that normal video games that come out for Xbox and they come out for PC, um, but then they'll also work in virtual reality. And obviously the settings will be the same, but and you might have to use a different rendering engine or something. But the essential essence of the game, with the characters and everything, will it'll just be able to port it to a new platform. So you're still in order for the game to sell, is it still has to be really good and good enough to compete against all the other games on PCs and on consoles. Although, so although I think, right there. yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and that that's that's good, but. I think also there's going to be a lot of people getting into VR not from the game world, you know. I mean, from the mm -hmm. advertising world, right? From the from other other places. But all right, I have another question though, Paul. I want to take this into a slightly different direction because I want to ask you what you think about um, what you think about. Uh, all this stuff and neuroplasticity. You know, I'm thinking about um, uh, some of the research I've been reading about reading. <laughs> can, can you define neuroplasticity for our listeners, please? No, no, yes, I will. Uh, <laughs> ne um, neuroplasticity is the idea that, well, actually, okay. So uh, maybe about 10, 15, 20 years ago, people pretty much thought that uh, your brain developed when you were little and then it stopped developing and essentially remained the same. And so your brain structures and what went on in the brain and how much of your brain was dedicated to this or that, 
um, you know, stayed the same. I mean, we used to make jokes about, you know, oh, I, I, I got drunk last night. I killed brain cells. You know, the idea being that, that you had this limited amount of brain cells and, and, and things were wired a certain way and they just then stayed that way from, you know, about puberty uh, until you died. Uh, and it was all downhill. And then, um, I don't know, I would say maybe, and Paul, please jump in and correct me with my, my approximate dates here. You know, maybe about 10 or so years ago, uh, 15 years ago, we started to understand that the brain was a lot more flexible than, than we thought. And that there are some things that uh, don't change at all or don't change very much. Um, but that the brain has um, some capability of um, of changing how it's working and what it's doing and what part of the brain is doing what. And so that um, uh, the idea, for instance, I talk about reading because I think a lot of people who, who don't maybe haven't studied neuroscience, I know I meet a lot of people who, without really thinking about it, if you ask them, you know, hey, is reading, you know, kind of uh, built into the brain, wired into the brain. So when you're born, you know, somewhere in your brain, you have this part of the brain that's going to read. And it just, you know, maybe take a couple of years to develop, but it's there. And the latest work is showing that, no, there is no part of the brain that's dedicated to reading. It, it Reading actually is a fairly new um, thing that humans have been doing. I mean, uh, very few hum humans knew how to read even just a couple hundred years ago. And so to read, you actually are taking parts of the brain that were doing other things and now they are dedicated to reading. And so that's the idea of neuroplasticity, that our brains can can um, can change based on what we're, we are asking them to do. And so I'm wondering if, what well, Paul, I'd love to hear just what you think about neuroplasticity in general. And then I'm wondering, you know, as we move into this uh, world where we're starting now to, um, well, I'm kind of curious about whether we know anything about how our brain has reacted to video and movies. And then as we move into virtual reality, you know, is, is our brain going to change um, if we spend significant amounts of time in virtual reality rather than physical reality? Uh, these are uh, really good and deep questions. And um, I think I'll give you a shot at the answer. I think we're still evolving. So, I, you know, as you know, more neuroscience has been done in the last 10 years than was done in the previous 100 years. Um, so we're just starting to get insights into this. Um, but uh, before we, st we got online, you know, we were talking... Uh, chatting and I gave a talk yesterday uh, in California and I said you know the two most important things that we've learned about the brain particularly the human brain in the last 10 years uh, number one is that the brain is plastic throughout our entire life it's constantly reshaping and remodeling uh, it does that through a variety of really interesting mechanisms um, by the way for listeners the two most important ways to stimulate neuroplasticity uh, number one is exercise aerobic exercise number two is enough sleep so, you know, all that stuff your mom told you when you were like in eighth grade, <laughs> honey, you know, <laughs> get enough sleep and get some exercise, uh, turns out to be true. Um, the second is, uh, which I think is underappreciated, is uh, the degree to which uh, human beings' brains act, brain activity varies uh, across individuals. That is, you know, we, we think a lot about averages, but the dispersion around those averages is enormous. And uh, when I teach my intro behavioral neuroscience course, you know, I, I, my stealth reason for it, which I tell the students, you know, towards the end is you should have tolerance for people who are different than you because everyone's brains are working differently, even in the same situations. They're working likely similarly, but, you know, when you measure brain activity for a living like I do, uh, you know, you just can't come away from the undeniable fact that I can put... 20 people in this situation, and I'm going to get 20 moderately different, uh, you know, measures of brain activity for reasons that are super interesting and complicated. Um, so, yeah, so I think, to answer your question, Susan, I think we're constantly running experiments on ourselves. Um, you know, we are 
just figuring out if the stuff we're doing is hurting us or helping us. And I think relative to to VR, you know, it can be a good or an evil, depending on how it's deployed. I think there's increasing evidence, uh, particularly for young people who spend a lot of time uh, engaging in uh, playing violent uh, video games, that that changes their threshold to respond to violence and perhaps to even commit violence. That's worrisome. On the other hand, really nice recent work has shown the individuals who uh, spend time reading literature that has to do with um, you know, understanding other people, empathy, uh, that tends to increase people's sense of empathy you know, in, the, in the world in general. So as we're building these very, very rich virtual environments to engage in, and, and again, we have a history of doing that, movies, uh, books for that matter, um, TV, uh, you know, we're, we're moderately changing the way our brains react. So we can choose to use that for good or for ill. Uh, in my lab, we've done a lot of work using public service announcements. Um, so how do we motivate people to uh, not drink and drive, to not use drugs, to live a healthier lifestyle? Uh, and it can be done through effective storytelling and, um, and, a, and a kind of, uh, quote, people like us sort of uh, ads. Um, you know, people like you and me do this kind of thing. And if I can tell that in a compelling way, then um, I can influence you short term and, and, and uh, with increasing evidence in a longer term to adopt, you know, appropriate behaviors. Uh, but if I want to teach you to be, I don't know, evil, aggressive, um, yeah, at the margins, I can probably do that. I can take people who are already a bit aggressive or have impulse control problems and accentuate that aggression in them. So, um, yeah, we have to be careful in these experiments. Yeah, I think, you know, there's uh, I, I kind of go back and forth and back and forth. I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, I just get I, I mean, underneath everything, I'm probably just a scientist. So I just get <laughs> excited about, you know, checking it, checking it out. You know, what's this going to do? What's this going to do? And and I love um, uh, I don't know if you know, Paul, uh, Marianne Wolf's um work she wrote um uh about uh the reading in the brain and um you know she makes the comment because she says she says she she thinks that the, the way we're reading now for instance the way we read online and the way we tend to scan and skim more online than if we're immersed in a narrative and and by online, she does not mean like ebooks versus physical books. Although you know she talks about the differences between those, but she's really talking more about you know online content that's chunked and has headings and that kind of thing, rather than um, an immersive narrative. Um, but you know she says that uh, that it's likely that as we change the way we read it will change our brains um, because learning to read, just just the idea of reading has changed our brains, right? And back to that, I, you know, th this evolution. But she said, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different. And um, she points out that back when, uh, you know, the printing press came out and people started reading, uh, people were, people, there were people saying, this is, the, is going to be the end of civilization. As we know, it, if everybody's reading, right. <laughs> it's going to change things so much uh, that, you know, this will be the uh, and it did change things. I mean, it has changed things, you know, that people read. It's changed a lot, um, but not necessarily that it was the end of the civilization. Right. So, you know, I, 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 I go back and forth between, yeah, it's, you know, it's OK. We're changing. We're evolving. Uh, that's just the way it is. Um, but then I do, I, I spend a lot of time, especially these days, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about um, our uh, role and responsibility, especially people who design and create stuff. Um, it, you know, what, I think the, I think the, um, I think it's getting more serious and more important as we create things. I, I'm, uh, Guthrie and I are going to uh, 
Stockholm tomorrow. Tomorrow, actually. actually. Yeah, tomorrow. I was going to say next week, and it's like, no, it's tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we get uh, on tomorrow. And I'm going to be giving a talk on the uh, the future of, of human-computer interaction. And so I've been thinking a lot about, for instance, um, you know, the design of uh, sociable robots, you know, mm-hmm. and... Um, we have, you know, people who are going to be creating these interactions. And to me, this is similar to people who are going to be creating the virtual reality experiences. You know, what's, um, what are they going to create? You know, what, what kinds of interactions do we want to have? Uh, what kind of interaction do we want to have, you know, uh, alone ourselves in a virtual world? What kind of interactions do we want to have with, um, you know, sociable robots? Uh, I, and I'm not sure, you know, it's like I, so on the one hand, I'm excited about it. And on the other hand, you know, it's like, well, you know, we don't necessarily do a great job at having relationships with each other or, or with the other animals and plants that are in our physical world. I don't know that I have a lot of confidence that we'll always make good decisions about interactions in these virtual worlds. I have a question. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. But I want to push back a little, Susan, on you, if I I may, based on experiments we've run. You know, as you know from my book, you know, we have this deep desire to socialize with others. uh, And and because of that, um, we want to, you know, to be part of social groups, you have to behave appropriately. And so... You know, this chemical that it was the first to discover affects things like trust and generosity. The oxytocin is a key modulator that that tells us when we're behaving appropriately and how we connect to others, increases our sense of empathy. Um, so, you know, although we, you know, certainly slaughter a lot of cows to eat and other animals, uh, we've been running experiments recently on animal-human interactions, and uh, you know. By and large, people are very, very kind to animals. These, again, these are you know, healthy Western, well-fed people. Um, but you know, we, our deeply social nature makes us care about uh, more than just ourselves. Makes us care about you know, even complete strangers and and extends to animals, and it might even extend to to some plant life as well. So, um, I you know, I think the more we're immersed in other worlds, the more we get to experience. The world from someone else's perspective. Did and, you see? Oh, sorry, my apologies. Sorry, just one more thought. Just yeah, the, the psychologist uh, Stephen Pinker at Harvard uh, argued in his book um, that reading was one of the factors. Reading and, and subsequent empathy or understanding of other people is one reason for the the radical decline in violence in the last five hundred years in the world. So, um, you know, I do think that there's. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too much of an optimist, but you know, there is this sort of innate desire for goodness in, in the human species because um, even though the bad behavior gets all pressed, it's the good behavior that keeps the world, you know, working in the right way. So um, I think, you know, there there's going to be VR pornography, there's going to be uh, VR violence, but I think for most people we're, we're less interested in that than we are interested in in understanding other people, other worlds, other even other universes. Who knows? I'm sorry, Guthrie, go ahead. So I have uh, two questions. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to say both of them, and then you can, you guys can, can tackle them. The first is, uh, so do you think, I was thinking about learning to read. What a waste of time that is, you know? I know, like, we spent two <laughs> years in kindergarten teaching these kids to read. Now they're learning important social skills. I'm not discounting that. But the reading part takes forever. Imagine every child, when they're three, gets a VR headset that they strap on, like, 10 hours a day, and they're in a world where in order to like do anything, they have to learn to read. Boom. Teach all the kids to read in six months in virtual reality. Does that haunt you or is that awesome? Okay, that's question one. Question two, uh, did you, have you seen or heard about the research? And I don't know how, I, re- I read an article about it. I don't know if it's great research or um, where they had uh, people touch a robot's butt and then they got sexually aroused. <laughs> All right, Guthrie, that is a strange collection of well, questions. Well, the first one kind of came earlier and the second one came later. Uh, go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I'll take the butt one. Uh, oh, um, good, good. Recent take... out of Duke showing that uh, monkeys are very interested in uh, uh, other monkeys, particularly if they're higher status or if they're ovulating females, uh, in particular focused on their butt. So it's called the monkey butt study, kind of got a lot of press. Um, so yeah, you know, that's probably valuable information. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wrote a, a blog in, for Psychology Today five years ago, at least six years ago, um, on robot brides. I think for people who are yeah. lonely, you know, these effective robots, they're pretty darn good. I don't know if you've seen them, but they, you know, they- they better every year. Yeah, and so, again, these, these brain systems are quite blunt. Uh, and we've done a fair amount of research on, uh, on, on romantic relationships as well. And it's not like this is a fine-tuned system. It's, it's a presumably a system that wasn't, uh, didn't have a lot of selection pressure evolutionarily. And so, yeah, people can fall in love. I mean, you know, if you ever put down a dog, it's, it's an awful experience. If that's your dog, man, it's the worst thing. Um, I'm sure it's not as bad as, uh, you know, losing a child or something, God forbid. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, we really do get attached to things. So, um, you know, if we get attached to a dog and a robot who's even more responsive, uh, so anyway, uh, that's the variety of human experience. And I think we should just accept that there are some people who are going to prefer having robot uh, husbands or brides and, and others who, uh, you know, will like the humans. This is, this is a, uh, the glass is half full kind of guy. He, you, you are definitely an optimist about, about technology. This is good. This is good. This is helpful because sometimes I think that uh, I do get, you know, get get a little dark. But you you have a lot of um, you. I can tell you're going to have a, a lot more tolerance for some of the technology than yeah. Paul. Than I, I, I'm with you. I I'm, I'm in lockstep with the with, with Paul. Yes. Okay. All right. So maybe I should stay the pessimist just to balance you guys out. You know. You should. <laughs> All right. We're, now we're delusional, probably. So. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but I think you might be. No. But uh, and then Guthrie, your question about reading. Wow, that's that's an interesting question. You know, reading because I mean, I'm trying to think about in in Marianne Wolf's book. You know, she she talks a lot about it, uh, how people become readers and how they become fluent readers, um, and. Uh, the fluency being very interesting, by the way. And Guthrie, we should probably, I don't know if we have this on the list. We should probably, you know, do a podcast just about reading and maybe we can see if, if uh, Marianne Wolf would come on. Um, but it's, uh, uh, she talks about the fact that when you are a fluent reader, meaning you, you can read and think about what you're reading at the same time, which is really interesting. You know, that's the point. And she talks about the fact that when people read, they are having a richness of experience if they're fluent readers. Like they are, they're reading and they're, they're uh, connecting that, you know, what they're reading to what they know and what their experience has been. Um, and Paul, I wonder if you've done any uh, of your measurements while people were reading a story rather than, you know, like watching a video. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious about what the, what the difference in richness and engagement would be in that. Um, but in anyway, to get to that point, there's a lot that has to happen in the brain in terms of, um, in development of, and, and it's, it's essentially stealing, uh, parts of the brain that we're doing other things and, and, and then allowing, allowing them to be used for reading. So I don't know, Guthrie, if, if immersing people in a virtual world and then they couldn't do things unless they learned to read, I'm not sure if that would, if that would help or not. I mean, it, it, it might. Um, I think for some people, um, uh, and who, are, who learn to read fairly easily, uh, that's kind of what they're doing. You know, they just want to be able to understand, the, you know, the story that, for instance, the adult is reading them, and they they want to be able to read it themselves. And they and so they are, you know, they have that kind of motivation to 
to keep going with it. And I believe in in um, Marianne Wolf's book, she talks about the fact that um, you know the the precursors to reading are so important. And yes, reading to a child is a precursor, but apparently um, a lot of talking is uh, also a very important precursor to to reading. So, so children who are who um, are talked to a lot. Uh, have an easier time learning to read than than children who are not. So the 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 thought is is that if you can get kids in a virtual environment early, re- really early, you know, like again three or four, while their brains are still just developing, uh, by doing by doing that for a bunch of hours, you could very quickly and effectively again because you could be monitoring the 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 responses the kids are having so you could tailor it just so um, you could very quickly develop a part of the brain that the brain could use for just that specific function again reading was an example but really it could be anything so that by the time they hit school their brain is already like you've done all the groundwork so the brain uh, the the parts of the brain that needed to be developed just just to be able to excel in those areas that groundwork is already done. So the kids can hit the ground running once they start learning. Yeah, I think the cost of that, as, as Susan said, Guthrie, is you know you have only so much brain area, and a lot of the area in the brain is multi-purpose. So one of my pet peeves in neuroscience is the word hardwired. So almost nothing outside of things that controlling your, your breathing and heart rate is hardwired in the brain. Everything else is softwired, so it responds to your environment. Um, so I'm not sure you want to have uh, sort of hyper connected reading kids at two years old. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's a reason to allow these systems to develop at the pace they are. So, for example, the the brain doesn't doesn't fully wire up uh, actually until you're about 30. So, in terms of what we call myelination, which is that the, the uh, insulation around the connections between neurons. Um, so, it, it it might be too young. I, I think, again, we're running experiments on, on ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. For example, you, we could do what you're talking about by giving kids amphetamines, and we're doing a lot of that with, for kids with ADD. And so we can increase prefrontal activity, more focus, um, you know, but there are costs of that. It looks like, at least from an adult perspective, long-term amphetamine use has costs. So um, we're not really sure what that does to kids. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, we are directing our own evolution, and that's that's the the, the scary world. So now I'm going to move over to Susan's camp and say, yeah, it worries me a little bit. Okay, can I tell my own quick uh, story about learning to read? Sure. It'll be it'll be real quick. I remember when I was learning to read, I was probably about five, and I was a little bit of a late reader, um, but I remember very specifically, I I knew how to do some, I knew how to kind of do letters, so and I could I could kind of write words. And I remember having like three words um, and I was trying to figure out how you put the words together. And the first thing that I, that I did was I tried putting spaces between each word. And I remember thinking, that's stupid. There's, that, that doesn't work. Okay, spaces are out. So then the next thought was, okay, I'm gonna put lines, like like break like like break lines between each word, so that you knew when one word stopped and the next word started. And lines seemed a much better way to construct sentences. So that's what I went with. And then when I when they were like, This is how you read, I was very confused. <laughs> well th- this is this is re- this reminds me of what uh Paul said about everybody's brain is different. So, <laughs> oh, Paul, just so you know, I have a strange brain. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, Su- Su- Susan does all kinds of uh, you know brain stuff, and a lot of her talks, she does you know various things so people can kind of see how their brain's working and what's going on. And like in a lot of them, I I go the other way. I was like, <laughs> which one is it, right? And like ninety nine percent of the people go, oh, it's this one, and and I my I usually go the other way. So that this is this isn't really news to me you know everyone everyone's weird in their own way and you know from a behavioral perspective it's super cool that people have different brains and brains function differently um again if you had a uh, you know again god forbid you had a stroke and you could move your arm you know a good neurologist could tell you really quickly where that stroke occurred 
but you know that you respond differently to words on a page than I do or Susan does. To me, that's just super interesting and cool. See, we don't mind that you're weird, Guthrie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not weird. My brain is weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not weird. It's just you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been amazing. I mean, Paul, I uh, I didn't know that we would be talking about smelling robot butts. I have, I have to... Touching. I was touching. Oh, oh, touching. Okay, yes. good. That's better. Um, anyway, uh, that that was a little a little far out there, but um, I, I've I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to like like think about all this stuff. What do you, Paul? Tell us um, before we we wrap up here. What's like? Um, I have two questions for you. First, what's kind of the next new exciting thing you're you think you might be working on in your lab? And then, what's the thing? You aren't working on yet, but that, you know, you wish you could. And if you had any more thoughts about anything or had questions for us, yeah, that too. Boy, great questions. Um, we're really working now on um, integrating across different consumer platforms. So really trying to understand how people go from an online user experience to um, uh to an advertising experience, to an in-store experience, and integrating those across platforms. And we're developing some technology that lets us do that in, uh, I don't want to say seamless, but in a, at least in a clean way, so we can really understand from a marketing perspective uh, the, the sort of a soup-to-nuts approach. Um, you know, people still go into stores, and you know, the, the competition for attention is, is obviously higher from a consumer's perspective, um, but Anyway, uh, we, we've been sort of uh, digging away at that for uh, a couple of years and I think are, are making some real interesting progress, which, which interacts with your work on, on, on user experience. Um, and the second is we're still doing a lot of, in the lab. We're still doing a lot of clinical work. Uh, we're, we're actually making some progress now on um, uh, some new assays for, um, for neurologic disorders or psychiatric disorders that have social uh, deficits. Uh, like autism and psychopathology, and developing uh, new assays for that. So um, it's it's fun to have a foot in both worlds, where uh, we get to to take on difficult creative problems that potentially for consumers make their world much more interesting and and uh, exciting, and also continue to do um, you know hopefully uh, fundamental research that can change clinical practice. Um, so. Um, Anyway, I've decided just not to sleep for the next 20 years of my life. Yeah, that's <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. All this stuff. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you needed to sleep and you needed to have exercise. Oh, gosh. I did exercise this morning. So, all right, uh, uh, all right. I just do. Yeah. <laughs> and um, if you could work on something that, uh, you know, you haven't had a chance to yet, what, what, would you, what would you do? Gosh, what a great question. Um, you know, uh, uh Last year, I, I think I went to five of the seven continents. I want to run an experiment in Antarctica. I don't know why. I don't That's know what awesome. it's about. But I'm really interested in these individuals who can spend, particularly who can winter there. Uh, I think there's a special kind of brain uh, like Guthrie's that, that you, know, <laughs> you know, really isolated with a small group of individuals and not freak out. Uh, so anyway, I, I want someone to... to to send me uh, down to Antarctica to run some kind of experiment that I'll figure out later on. Uh, I just think it'd be super cool to to figure out what's going on down there. Okay, awesome. I am not. I am not going with you on that one. Come on, let's no, go together. No, 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 I'm no, no. Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. I knew. I knew Guthrie would say that. He'd go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I knew. Uh, I think I, I was acquaintances with someone who did because I, I went to the University of Wisconsin and they they run um, a lab down there, so. I knew. Oh, really? Yes. You know someone who was down in Antarctica? Yes, they did ship Check. down there. Hook me oh. up. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. Acquaintance. Yeah. I'm not, uh, it was, it was, it was a while ago too, but anyways, um, but they, that was, that was apparently quite the, quite the trip. All right. So before we go, um, Guthrie, you going to have Paul tell us how people can get hold of him? Yeah. I was just to say, um, if people want to listen to Paul do a lot more stuff, uh, there's, there's all kinds of great um, videos and stuff that he's done online. Paul, any, anything you want to plug? Uh, 
Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find out about our uh, commercial work at zestxlabs.com. You can connect to me there. Um, we're just doing the coolest stuff, I think, to, to really, again, quantify uh, creative output, help creatives um, really understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and um, uh, do some work on movies now. There's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of stuff there you can dig around and play with and uh, lots of demos. So um, anyway, Zestex Labs, it's, uh, it's a fun site. You can, you can see what we're doing. Uh, and uh, again, you can go check out our website. It's theteamw.com. If you have any questions or suggestions for future shows, uh, email me at info at theteamw.com. Susan, what's your Twitter handle? The Brain Lady. The, the Brain Lady. Um, if you happen to be in Sweden, we will be in <laughs> Stockholm yeah, for the we'll next see couple days. So send me an email. We'll go get, I don't know, the, the herring. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see what we'll see what they eat in Sweden. Um, again, we're on all the social uh, marketing platforms. Paul, this is so great. Um, if you ever want to do this again, just let us know. Yeah, thanks you guys for, are wonderful. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> well, what a ball this was. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> no, thank all you, right. Paul. All right, uh, and uh, with that, I think we'll we will end things. And uh, to all those listening, thanks so much, and have a great week. Bye.